Those five words that he spoke in Matthew 28, 20 and reiterated in many forms throughout even this chapter we're working through today. I am with you always. Those five words have meant more in my own life than I have time to tell you about this morning. In fact, for many people, they have been the difference at times between hopelessness and hope, between walking away and pressing on between wondering if something maybe was even possible and knowing that it was for certain. Those five words have meant the difference between risking nothing for many people and risking everything. They're often the difference between fear and courage, between hate and love, between dread for tomorrow and great joy in the journey, even when that journey isn't easy. I am with you always. I cannot express how much those five words have meant to me personally. We talked about it last week, how Jesus promised that his Holy Spirit would actually live inside of us and how that would be the only way that we would ever be able to do everything that he has called us to do. But listen, it goes even beyond that. It goes, it goes beyond what we're able to do for him. His spirit within us, the I am with you always, also determines who we are able to be for him. It defines what kind of men and women we become, how we respond to people and situations throughout life, how we hold up when everything and everyone around us seems to be falling apart. In fact, it's what affords us the supernatural ability to bear all things that are unbearable to others. And so just after pointing uh, to love, for instance, as the highest gift of God at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He says, Love never ends, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. You see, it's, it's the I am with you always that gives us that capacity to love and to hope and encourage and stand fast in times of great testing. In fact, it's the difference between the followers of Jesus Christ and the followers of everything else because we have the spirit of the living God living inside of us. He is with us always. This is the key to all that we are and to everything that we hope to become no matter what this life throws at us, which is the message that Jesus is trying to get across to his followers in our story today as we continue to work our way through the gospel according to John as we've now reached the end of his farewell discourse and he's now tying it all together just before the passion narrative which begins uh, with his arrest and trial just a few hours from our story today. And so this message this morning is really a bit of a, a part two if you will, to last week's message as Jesus is offering his disciples some final instructions for life as he stands on the very doorstep of Golgotha and the cross. And we talked about his Holy Spirit in us last week and he's continuing on that theme uh, this morning, which of course means that life is now about to drastically change for the disciples as well. So Jesus is preparing them here for all that is to come by teaching them that they can actually have joy and peace and victory in their lives, even under the most difficult circumstances. And honestly, don't you want that for your own life? 
I certainly do. To have joy and peace and, and victory in every situation, in every circumstance in life, even before some of those tough situations are uh, resolved, even before the final outcome has been determined, when, when everything seems maybe to be a giant question mark in your life and turmoil surrounds you, wouldn't it be nice to have real joy, true peace, all the way through it, and, and even an undeniable sense of victory, even though you don't know how it will all turn out. And it's not the absence of sorrow or struggle, by the way, that we're talking about. Those are realities of this life that cannot and actually should not always be avoided, as we'll see. But it's the ability to have joy and peace and even victory in the midst of those sorrows and those struggles. That's what Jesus is teaching us today. And the key to it is understanding that statement I am with you always. Because the relationship that we have with His Spirit inside of us is what determines who we become. In fact, do you, do you know that the greatest achievement that any of us could ever claim in this life is complete submission to the Spirit of Christ in us? That should be the highest goal of every Christian, to live a life fully submitted to God. His Spirit within us. Because anything and everything that we could ever hope to become rises and falls on the strength of that relationship with Him. And so, just after explaining that He was sending His Holy Spirit to be with us and how much we would need His Spirit to be able to accomplish all that He's called us to do for the sake of this gospel, He's now reassuring His disciples that although life will certainly be difficult at times, that by His own Spirit within us, we can still have joy and peace and victory. And listen, we talk like this in our churches a lot. We talk about and we sing about victory and peace and joy, and it's all good. But to be honest, I wonder sometimes if the language and the songs that we use aren't more a part of our church culture than they are actually a part of our daily lives. And so I just want us to really consider this morning what Jesus is saying here, because if we will let them, these words will radically change our lives, and they will even shape who we become. So let's pick up our story where we left off last week. In John chapter 16, we'll start with verses 16 through 18. It says, A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. He talked about that last week. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. So Jesus knows what is coming. We've seen that already. In less than 24 hours from this statement, he will be dead. Which means that in a little while, they will see him no longer. And yet just a few days later, or again a little while as he put it, they will see him again because he will be resurrected. So this is a basic timeline of coming events, if you will, but they still have no real understanding of everything that is about to happen, uh, which is obvious by their confusion about his comments here. It also justifies Jesus' earlier statement back in verse 12 that we saw last week when he said to them, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Okay, These disciples don't yet have the capacity to be the kind of people 
who can bear the present reality or the future implications of the gospel in their own lives. Because the helper, uh, as Jesus described him, the parakletos in the Greek, the Holy Spirit has not yet been sent to them. And likewise, if we don't submit our hearts and minds to the guiding of the Holy Spirit within us, we will never be able to understand fully the words of Christ either. Okay, His Spirit in us gives us understanding. He reveals the meaning of His Word to us. He guides us even in our prayers, the Word says. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We already read back in verse 13 of this chapter that the Spirit guides us into all the truth. All right, look... We can love Jesus. We can believe in Jesus. We can even serve Jesus, just as these men did. But if we don't submit our lives to His Spirit's guiding presence within us, then we will never fully understand His purposes as events unfold in our lives, and we will certainly not be able to navigate through those difficult seasons with any sense of real understanding or confidence about what to do next if we're not being guided by His Spirit. And actually, I would say this is a fairly common problem for a lot of Christians today. We love Jesus, and we believe in Jesus, and we even serve Jesus, but we don't spend the time that we should attending to His Spirit within us. And so we, we see Christians becoming very confused about circumstances, which then will often lead them into great sorrow, even depression. Some carry this sense of defeat. That's what we see here in our story today because these disciples don't yet have the I am with you always indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. And so they're still a bit lost and clearly unsettled about the future. And of course Jesus knows that. And so he begins to explain that even in their most difficult hours, even in the hardest parts of their lives, they can overcome because of what he's about to accomplish on the cross, first of all, and then the ongoing relationship that they will have with him after that by his spirit. And the, the lesson that he's teaching here has profound implications for all of us today. Let's keep reading verses 19 and 20. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So Jesus explains that in his absence, the disciples are going to weep and lament while the world rejoices, which is exactly what happens when Jesus is taken away and crucified. While his followers grieve his death, the world around them celebrates which is simply the pattern of an unregenerate humanity. Without God, people will sometimes celebrate what is evil and then rail against that which is good. And then Jesus says something that really should altogether transform the way that we approach sorrow in our own lives. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So first of all, he says, you will be Sorrowful, And of course, in the immediate sense, he's referring to the cross and the initial effect that will have on his disciples. But you can't rule out the broader implications of that statement for us today, which becomes even more clear as the story continues, uh, which we'll get to. But just consider first 
that sorrow is a reality for all of us at times in our lives. If you look at the ancient Greek uh, text here, the word used is lupeo, which is a reference to a profound inner sadness. And when he uses the word sorrow uh, in the same verse, it's the word lupe. It's a shorter version of sorrowful. It's the same word. It's the root of the same word. The point is, nowhere does Jesus promise us a trouble-free life. Nowhere. In fact, it's the quite op opposite, as we'll see. Sorrow is a reality for all of us at times. But what he says next is truly astounding. And it, it flies in the face of conventional thinking, certainly Western thinking, when it comes to sorrow. He says your sorrow will turn into joy. The wording here is quite significant because what he's not saying is when your sorrow passes, you will have joy. Or once you get over your sorrow, you can have joy. No, he doesn't say once you learn to cope with your sorrow, you will have joy. As if sorrow is always to be avoided at all costs. No, there are actually times in our lives when we experience sorrow by God's design. Nobody wants to hear that. I don't want to hear that. But it's the truth. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And included in the list that follows in verse 4, he says, A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And then in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And the Greek word for grief in that verse is the word lupe. It's the same word in verse 20 uh, for sorrow in our text. So there is sorrow that is intended to produce Christ-likeness in us, that helps us to become the men and women that he intended for us to be, which means that if we devote all of our energy and resources toward always avoiding or eliminating any kind of sorrow in our lives as fast as possible, we may actually be missing out on something beautiful that he's trying to do in us. But when we accept the work that's taking place, when we embrace the work of His Spirit who is always with us, even through our times of sorrow, He doesn't always simply move us beyond it because He's able to actually turn that sorrow into joy, okay? Our source of sorrow can become a source of joy, which is an altogether different prospect than simply trying to get over something or get past something or learning to cope with something. No, this is the point that Jesus is trying to get across to his followers here because if we can recognize sorrow as at least potentially a divine assignment in our lives, then our approach toward and our perspective of difficult seasons of life can change dramatically. This is how Jesus puts it in verses 21 through 24. He says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay? Let's not miss what Jesus is saying here. What, he, what he's not saying is you can go out and, and uh, stand in front of the Ferrari dealership 
and, and uh, ask him for that car and he's going to give it to you. This isn't name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, prosperity gospel. I'm sorry. I wish it worked that way. That'd be cool, but it doesn't. He's talking about sorrow in our lives. And when we are walking through deep sorrow, he is listening because he's with us always and we can petition him and he will turn our sorrow into joy. Jesus says, the cross, my death, will bring you great sorrow. However, that same cross, that same death is going to turn into a source of great joy. What a weird thing to say. You know, the cross wasn't a religious symbol back then. It symbolized one thing, and you didn't want it. The worst kind of death. And he says, it's going to turn into a great source of joy. How can, that, how can that be? Because of what that death will accomplish for you and me. That is precisely what we see with his disciples after the work of the cross was completed. The disciples' sorrow actually turned into joy. It, it wasn't that they had to get past the cross past their sorrow so that they could come to a place of joy. Not at all. It actually was their sorrow that would turn into joy. The very same thing that brought sorrow, his death, later brought them great joy. And so it is for us today. We look upon the cross with tremendous joy, not because of Jesus' suffering, but because of what it accomplished for us, right? We wear crosses around our necks and we hang them in our houses and we decorate our sanctuaries with them, not because of the sorrow that the cross makes us feel, but because of the joy that we associate with the meaning of the cross. It's a celebration of what Jesus produced by way of the cross and all the sorrow that initially went along with it. I love how uh, Charles Spurgeon puts it. He said, It is most remarkable and instructive that the apostles do not appear in their sermons or epistles to have spoken of the death of our Lord with any kind of regret. The Gospels mention their distress during the actual occurrence of the crucifixion, but after the resurrection, and especially after Pentecost, we hear of no such grief. That he should suffer was cause for grief, but that he has now suffered all is equal cause for joy. When a champion returns from the wars bearing the scars of conflict by which he gained his honors, does anyone lament over his campaigns? Okay, our sorrow is not always an obstacle to be overcome. It, at times at least. It is the means by which the Spirit of God shapes us into the men and women that he wants us to be. And so if we could just keep that perspective in hardship in distress, in the really tough times, and follow the Spirit of God as He guides us through it, instead of always trying to avoid it, or ignore it, or suppress it. If we allow Him to shape us through those trials, we may actually derive a greater joy later from the same source that once produced great sorrow. And listen, that is a much deeper, abiding kind of joy. In fact, Jesus explained to his disciples, he said, once your sorrow turns into joy, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And I want that kind of joy. The kind that no person or any circumstance can take away from me. I do. And it, it just may come out of great sorrow. And yet, it's not as if he expects us to just suck it up, toughen up, dig in your heels, take your lumps. That's not what he's talking about. He weeps with us. 
when we grieve. But he also expects us to ask him for everything that we need when we're grieving. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay, he, he wants to comfort us. He wants to guide us and bless us in our most difficult days. That's why he says, I am with you always. Because he knows it's not always going to be easy. But he will always. He will always be with us. Let's keep reading. Verses 25 through 32. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. <laughs> and Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Kind of like, Yeah, right. He said, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So the disciples still don't get it, but we can at least commend them for trying. They just didn't have what they needed to fully bear the weight of the gospel yet, which again is proven uh, both in Jesus' prediction here and in their fulfillment of it when they abandon him in the coming hours. Which, by the way, this is an allusion by Jesus to uh, Zechariah 13.7 about 520 years earlier when he said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So knowing that they, they just weren't ready to process everything that was about to happen, he continues to teach them in figures of speech, even though they don't necessarily realize it. And then he describes both his relationship with the Father, which not only further makes his point about how we should respond to sorrow, but it also foreshadows the disciples' soon-to-be relationship with his Spirit when he says, and you will leave me alone, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is, is with me. And so just as Jesus always has the Father, we too always have his Spirit. He is always with us. And then in the first half of verse uh, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And so here he is standing on the brink of his own crucifixion. Jesus says you can have peace even in your greatest sorrow. Okay, our sorrow, our source of sorrow can become a source of peace. There has never been anyone more qualified to make that claim than Jesus himself. At this point, he is within two hours of being arrested. Two hours. And he's talking to these guys about having peace. That is utterly amazing. But notice, he makes that statement immediately after saying, I'm not alone, for the Father is with me, okay? Jesus knows that he can have peace in the midst of his own great sorrow because of his relationship, his connection with the Father. It is ever-present. He's never alone. And you can read story after story after story of people over the ages who have found the deepest peace and fellowship with the Spirit of Christ in the very midst of their greatest sorrow because so often sorrow has a way of focusing us 
on our great need of Him. And it is in that place of deep fellowship and those times of sorrow that we can find true peace. The Apostle Paul knew this so well. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which he are, we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Jesus made it clear that we will face sorrow in this life. And by the way, that isn't because God enjoys seeing us suffer. Not at all. There are bad things that happen to people every day that should not happen. We live in a world full of imperfect people. And because of sin, which was never God's plan for us, bad things happen. And Jesus knows that. And so he says, when your sorrow comes, and it will, my spirit will be with you because I'm with you always. And in that fellowship with me, you can experience joy and peace even in the midst of that sorrow. Uh, there's a man named Robinson Reisner. He died about three years ago. He was a military pilot, shot down during the Vietnam War, held captive by the Viet Cong for seven and a half years. And during that time, he was frequently tortured and held in solitary confinement. But he survived and was eventually freed. In an interview later, when asked what sustained him through all of those years of torture and captivity, he talked about his faith in Christ, specifically about the fellowship that he had with the Spirit of Christ in his darkest hours and how much closer to God he became during that time. He said, I finally got to the point where I trusted him enough that I could turn my life over to him. I lost my freedom, of course, but I came back a stronger person. Okay, as hard as it can be for us, when we are in the throes of real difficulty, really hard times, we can experience an abiding peace through fellowship with the Spirit of God, but we have to accept that offer by Him. And it is an offer, as we'll see. But first, let's finish our story for today with the last half of verse 33. This is as Jesus encourages His disciples for the last time before He's arrested. He says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so Jesus ends his instructions to his followers on a note of triumph, which is yet another extraordinary, extraordinary thing to say when you consider that he knew everything he was about to face. But he also knew that our source of sorrow can become a source of victory. His crucifixion gave way to his resurrection. His death gave way to his life. His apparent defeat gave way to certain victory. And he extends that victory ultimately over death, but also over the sorrows of this life to all who are in fellowship with him. John spoke of it later in his first epistle. He says, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 5, 4 and 5, right? Difficulty, hardship, times of strain, sorrow will come. That is a reality of living in this world, but it does not have to defeat us if we accept the offer that he has extended to each one of us. In uh, verse 33, he says, In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have. That's a promise. 
by Jesus. And yet earlier in the same verse, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have, you may have peace. That is an offer. You see, tribulation is a promise. Peace is an offer and it is his to give. So we have to choose to be in fellowship with to attend to the Spirit of God who is always with us if we want to experience true joy and peace and even victory over the trials that we face in this life. R.C. Sproul, the great scholar, put it this way. He said, The world threatens to crush you and me every minute of our lives. It hurls insults, tribulations, pain, death, all sorts of things that take away the joy that should be ours in Christ. But Jesus overcame the world. That's why the Apostle Paul could say we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, Romans 8, 37. It isn't because we have the power to beat the world. We don't. It is because he overcame the world for us. And by the way, this message from Jesus is given directly to his followers. So that's what we're talking about this morning. If you're not following Jesus Christ, you can there are several places in Scripture that tell us everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13, uh, Acts 2, 21, Joel 2, 32. It's an offer to all mankind, regardless of where you come from or who you are or how you've lived your life or what you've believed up to now. He offers salvation by grace through faith in Him to everyone equally. And then once we've entered into that relationship, he makes us another offer to remain in fellowship with him moment by moment, breath by breath, day by day, by his spirit within us. Even when our lives are turned upside down, we have that deep fellowship with him that supplies us with real joy and peace and even victory. And the key to that, what it all comes down to, is understanding five simple words. I am with you always. It all comes down to the spirit of the living God living inside of us. <laughs> because if he's not, if that is not true, if we don't actually have the spirit of Christ in us, then none of this is real. It's all just fantasy based on something that some dead guy taught to a handful of people a couple thousand years ago. Right? If Jesus was just a nice guy who said some really radical things and then he died and that was it, then we all need to go home and do something else with our time. This has to be more than just something we talk about or something we sing about. This has to be more than just a part of our church culture. Because what Jesus has called us to is not just something that we sing about once a week or talk about over lunch. He called us to lay our lives down for each other, to forfeit our own self-serving plans for life and instead completely exhaust our talents and desires and resources in the service of Him and each other. And I'm just telling you, if you're serious about that, that's going to mess your entire life up and all your plans. Because it changes everything. When you're in fellowship with His Spirit, you're no longer living for yourself. You're living for others. Or, there are too many things in this world 
that we give our time and attention to. But there aren't too many things that I'm willing to die for. Let's just be honest. I would die for my wife, my kids, my parents, my family. Yes, why? Because I love them and they're alive and I'm in relationship with them. That is real. The truth is I would die for you because I love you and you're alive and I'm in relationship with you. That is real. So you're all on the short list. I hope that makes you feel good. Now, would I lay my life down for the sake of this gospel if it was just some teaching by a nice guy who died a long time ago? No way. No way. I wouldn't have done any of the things I've done for most of my adult life if this wasn't real. Neither would have those men and women who followed him back then. We know that because just as Jesus predicted in verse 32, as soon as he was arrested, he said all his followers would abandon him. None of them wanted to be associated with him. That's just what they did. None of them wanted to die for him. None of them. And yet we know that all but one of them did in the end. They were all martyred, save one who happens to be the author of this gospel, and he lived out the rest of his days on a remote island in exile. Listen, through all of that, not one of them recanted their faith in Christ. In torture, in persecution, in ridicule, or even in death, they lived radical lives for Christ, unashamed and unafraid. Well, what in the world changed? When he was arrested and crucified, they were running scared. What changed? What changed is that he overcame death. He secured victory over death and the grave. And the historical records that we have say that he appeared for 40 days to his followers and many others, proving that he was alive and well. And then in Acts 2, after ascending to heaven in front of them, he sends his living spirit to live inside of all those who place their faith and trust in him forevermore. Peter said, this is for you and your sons and for all those who are far off. What changed was the reality of his resurrection and his living spirit then taking up residence, coming to live actually inside of those who follow him. You see, when you accept Christ into your life, we use that language, when you, when you accept him as your Lord and Savior and you follow him, it's not a little Jesus that comes and lives inside our heart, right? It's his spirit. If that wasn't true, you could maybe understand one or two of his disciples just losing it mentally from all the pressure and then claiming that he was alive and spending the rest of their lives then proclaiming that the gospel is true until they're killed for it. Maybe one or two. But all of them? Come on. The same men who were running, terrified of being associated with him, are now completely sold out for the very same person that they refused to even be mentioned with at his arrest and crucifixion. Now they're giving all that they have to testify to the truth of this gospel, even to the point of suffering horrendous deaths without recanting one single word. All of them who then went on to start the first Christian church, which turned into many churches, 
which has become by far and away the world's largest faith, with people still willing to die for the sake of the message of Christ every day, and many are in other parts of the world. How do you become that person? How do you become the person who's willing to set aside living for themselves and then devote the rest of your life to something that transcends just your life, just ourselves? How do you become that person? I'll tell you, it isn't because of a history lesson from a dead guy. No, it's because all of this is very real. Our Savior, the Messiah, is alive and He is well and His living Spirit is living inside of all of those who call upon His name. That's why there are people today who are still willing to die for Him and for each other. That's why we take care of each other here. That's why we constantly feed and clothe people who can't buy their own food or their own clothing. That's why we stop what we're doing often and we pray for one another when there's great need. That's why we spend tens of thousands of dollars to send people around the globe to tell others about Jesus. And it's why we bother to gather like this and worship Him together. Because He is, in fact, alive and well. And He's living inside of us. Okay, Jesus assured us that in this life we would have tribulation. Yet we can also have joy and peace and even victory through all of it. Don't you want that? He said that because of a promise that he made to all who call upon his name. Five simple words. I am with you always. Let's pray.